Ezekiel chapter 8. Now, if you were here Wednesday night, you know that Pastor Rick doesn't know his east from his west. However, <laughs> I was trying to explain about how Ezekiel was called to lay on his side, you know, 390 days and then 40 days. Left side, 390 days. Right side for 40 days. And explaining on his left side, he was looking to the north. On his right side, he was looking to the south. Because you need to listen to it to understand why. But I said, so, you know, so he's, he's there in Babylon um, with his head east to Jerusalem. And everybody's looking at me like, we're not understanding. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> east, you know, from Babylon, east to the Mediterranean. It's west. I know now. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, everybody just looked at me like, isn't cute? <laughs> You know, or the, or the southern phrase, which means you're an idiot. You know the one? Bless his heart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's our pastor. Bless his heart. <laughs> I'm so thankful that for all of our imperfections, we serve a perfect God. A God who is flawless, a God whose word is absolutely spot on. And though we may miss it from time to time, he never does. And so let's, let's look at this. This is a remarkable prophecy that we're going to see this morning. A, a vision, really, of something that took place. And it's, it's pretty incredible. You think last week was incredible with the whole, uh, you know, uh, hairy prophecy. This is, this is more so. Verse 1, chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. And then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth, earth and heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. Wow, Lord, amazing. And here we are once again with Ezekiel seeing some amazing things that you did with this prophet. Incredible things, Lord, except that it's in your word and so we understand it to be true. We'll ask that you will reveal to us not only what these visions in Jerusalem were, but what the purpose was. And I ask, Lord, for our hearts that you might give us guidance and direction. We are not exiles in Babylon, though sometimes we feel exiled on this earth. And we are not uh, like those who are back in Jerusalem, rebelling and suffering the onslaught of Babylon, though sometimes we are rebellious, Lord, and sometimes we suffer the onslaught of this culture. But Lord, we are simply your people here today, this morning, reading an amazing prophecy some 2,500 years old and asking for insight and revelation and that your spirit would provide application to our hearts and our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, an anonymous poet among the exiles, there by the rivers of Babylon, wrote in Psalm 137, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. We don't know who that poet was, who that psalmist was, other than he was an exile there in Babylon. But the poets and the prophets of any culture have a way of keeping passion and purpose alive among us. We don't always agree with our poets. We don't always like what we hear from our prophets. They make us uncomfortable, they challenge our thinking, but they keep passion rolling. They keep things before us. And they are necessary, I believe, in every culture, because most of us so easily forget. In my home office, stacks are bad news. You just need to know, and perhaps it's the same with you, if there's a stack on my desk, chances are there's something in that stack that I have not looked at for at least a year. Some critical piece of information that was handed to me or required of me, and I put it on my desk and it got stacked. Out of sight, out of mind. 
And that is my motto in our house. I tell Cheryl this all the time. Out of sight, out of mind. If you put that in a drawer, I will never see it again. I will never look for it again. I will not think about it. We have a place on our counter, right as you come in the door, just to the right, that tends to be kind of, Cheryl has acquiesced, and I'm so appreciative of this, to having a place where I can put certain things that have to be dealt with right then, that week. Thank you. Thank you. My brother. Because if it's not there in plain view for me, I'll space it and it won't get done. And I do the same thing in my office, on my desk. I know top of the stack is stuff that will be accomplished. The rest of the stack is just there, I don't know, for posterity or something. (laughs) But it's true with me, and maybe with you, out of sight, out of mind. And the exiles in Babylon were cut off from Jerusalem. Could not look to the temple. Couldn't see the land of Israel. They're in Babylon. They're in a distant place. At best, an occasional letter might make its way into Babylon. As we know, Jeremiah was called to to send a letter to the exiles there in Babylon. Occasionally, a new refugee would be brought in and would bring news or information about what was happening back in the land. But even that was sketchy. The exiles couldn't phone home. They couldn't text, tweet. They couldn't Facebook or Skype. They had no contact with the land from which they had been taken. And so it wouldn't take long for Jerusalem to be out of sight, out of mind. No wonder God raised up Ezekiel the prophet in exile, among the exiles in Babylon, to keep Jerusalem at the top of the stack, to keep Jewish faith preeminent, to keep home at the forefront of their minds. Here we are in the 8th chapter, and as it begins, it's now late summer, 592 B.C., probably August, September time frame, 14 months after Ezekiel's original vision. I told you before, he is very precise in the way he dates things and, and specifies when these visions, when these prophecies come. And what's amazing is just 14 months into his 22-year tenure as a prophet, his unconventional presentations are already having an effect. Because here he is in his home and the elders of the exiles are seated around him. They have now come to Ezekiel. We don't know why they came other than perhaps for information, perhaps for uh, revelation, for understanding. They know this Ezekiel has got something going on with the Lord. And so he's attracted their attention and they're huddled in his living room. And that is when this vision literally reached out and grabbed him. As verse 3 tells us, he stretched out in the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head, which is what I would call a hair-raising experience. (laughs) I mean, last week it was a hairy prophecy. Now we've got a hair-raising experience. This one is unique in all Scripture. In fact, many of Ezekiel's prophecies are unique in all Scripture. No other prophet is, is handled in such a way. Is, is given vision in such a, a remarkable way as Ezekiel caught up by a lock of his hair. By the way, Bible students, the word lock there is tzitzit, which is also translated tassel or the fringe, like the fringe of the prayer shawl that was so important. Now, I don't know what the significance is. I just thought I'd throw that out to you. It's typically tassel fringe. Here it is a lock of his hair. And you know, honestly, if I was Ezekiel, I think I would dreadlocks. But the point of interest to me here (laughs) is not so much how the prophet was transported, although that is unique and curious, caught by a lock of the hair and drawn over. It's, it's, It's where he was drawn. It is by whom he was lifted up. And it's when this took place. Where is Jerusalem? Now, a lot of commentators have tried to come up with different uh, versions of this story that perhaps he truly was literally raptured out of Babylon and set down in Jerusalem, in the flesh, in the body. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly it was a vision. And so while he is seeing what he's seeing, caught up in this vision in Jerusalem, his body is still there in his living room. The elders are still sitting around. I don't know what Ezekiel even looked like. I don't know if it was instantaneous that all this stuff just was a download. But Ezekiel saw this, was taken to Jerusalem in a vision. His body's still there. 
in Babylon. Well, <laughs> who can do something like that? Uh, God. So he's taken to Jerusalem. The who here is also important. Ezekiel references the man. He says, I was caught up in the spirit. Verse 4 will tell us it was the glory of the God of Israel, the same that he had seen before. The same vision of the man who from the loins and downward was like fire, from the loins upward looked like blazing fire. The same man, none other in my opinion than the spirit of Jesus himself. Who again, Ezekiel had already seen. Where is Jerusalem? Who is the Spirit of Christ? When? When is important? When is now? Or not right now, but it was immediate. The vision that Ezekiel is going to get in Jerusalem is not a past tense vision. It is not a future vision. It is an immediate vision. Remarkable. Because the elders are gathered there, perhaps seemingly for information or illumination from Ezekiel. And God says, I will show you what's happening in Jerusalem this minute. Right now. A real-time vision. We've only recently been able to do that kind of thing with our technology. You know? Watch something across the world in real time. With no delay. And God was doing this long ago. Well, the Spirit of Christ shows the prophet now four scenes in chapter 8. And we're just going to make our way through chapter 8 this morning and make some application. There's one primary application I think the Lord has for us that we'll come to at the end. But four scenes in real-time Jerusalem. Picking it up in verse 3, He stretched out the form of a hand, caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. And then He said to me, Son of man, Raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north. And behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. The first scene is the idol of jealousy. The idol of jealousy. What is this idol of jealousy? Well, we, we think we know. We, have, we can make an informed guess as to what the idol of jealousy is. you got to go back to 2 Kings 21 and just make a note of this. 2 Kings 21, verse 7, among the most evil of all the kings of Judah was Manasseh. And Manasseh set the carved image of an Asherah that he had made in the house which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Manasseh set the Asherim, or or an Asherah pole there, in the temple. There at the north gate of the inner court, which is the court where the priests only could go, uh, the inner court. There at the gate, an Asherah for people to worship as they came to and fro from the temple of God. But that wasn't the end of the story. There was a second Asherah. A second Asherah. Uh, Watch this. Uh, Manasseh repented. And later in life, apparently, not only repented, but God received, accepted his repentance, which is remarkable because the, the effects of Manasseh's sin still would wash over the people even after Manasseh himself had repented and I believe was forgiven by the Lord. And such it is many times in our lives. We will sin against. We will repent and find forgiveness, but our sin is still making its way in ripple effects into the lives of others. God is great in His forgiveness to forgive such a thing. And yet He seems to forgive Manasseh. Second Chronicles 33 verse 13 tells us when Manasseh prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He also removed all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. So Asher in number one, he removes from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. So there was a first Asherah set up by Manasseh in the temple, but Manasseh comes and says, no, no, we've got to get this out. I, I, I apologize, Lord, forgive me. 
And so the Lord does. But that's not the end of the story. Second Kings chapter 23, verse 6 tells us Josiah brought the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kedron and burned it at the brook Kedron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. Now wait a minute. Manasseh's already removed the Asherah. Now his son Josiah is king and Josiah goes into the temple and removes an Asherah. This is Asherah (laughs) 2.0. This is now a second one that has somehow crept back into the temple. Manasseh's removed it. Now Josiah removes it. But that's not the end. Because Josiah removes a second one and now Ezekiel sees at least a third one. Not Manasseh's Asherah. Not the second one Josiah incinerated, but the idol of jealousy, which we think is probably a third or more Asherah set up once again in the temple. A replacement for those that were taken out and destroyed before. And I read that and I thought, wow, sin is creepy. It just keeps creeping in. You take it out, you destroy it, it creeps back in. You get rid of it, it creeps back in. You destroy it yet again. It creeps back in. It seems like you turn around and... You know, I really wonder, in our lives, if our sin natures don't attach to something early on in life that keeps creeping in, even in our older years. Why would you say that, Rick? Well, think about this. Is there, for each one of us, is there not something peculiar or particular to you that you struggle with and continue to struggle with. And you look at other people and say, well, that's not a problem for me. That's not an issue over there. But this issue, I can't seem to be free of. I pray it away. I seek forgiveness. I try to move forward. And the Asher is back the next week. I'm sinning again. Human beings are repeat offenders. And we all struggle. And... Typically, our sins will present in different ways, but I really think the sin nature in man must attach to something early and we struggle with it all our lives. What is the answer to that? Keep your finger there and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. And consider what Jesus says about a similar issue. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Matthew 12:43 Jesus says, "Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order." Picture of the Asherah back in the temple. Right? And then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. He says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus describes exactly what happened in the temple. The Asher taken out. It comes back in. Taken out again. It comes back in. And each time the Asherah comes back into the temple, the state is worse. Each time they are closer and closer and closer to the absolute destruction of that temple. That's how sin works. We get it out, creeps in. We get it out, it creeps in. And it's not in lesser amounts, it's in greater amounts. And it seems to have a greater hold as it creeps in again and again and again. And here's the thing you got to understand. It is not enough to remove the sin. You have to replace the sin with Christ Jesus. Amen. You have to replace that desire with a desire for the Lord. With a focus on Him. Well, how do I do that, Rick? Well, you're not going to do it by sitting home. You're not going to do it by dusting off the Bible from time to time or by the occasional uh, annual prayer. It takes a concerted, decided life that says, I'm going to put Jesus first. I'm going to be where Jesus is. I'm going to surround myself with Jesus' people. I'm going to listen to Jesus' words. I'm going to put Jesus in the place of the temple so that the Asherah cannot find room to make its way back in. This third iteration of the idol of jealousy continued to take up space in the Lord's temple. And it's the very place, His temple, that the Lord determined that all of His followers could draw near. But now as His followers drew near, think about this, small children coming up to the temple with their parents and they see the Asherah. 
And at first, I'm sure there were moms and dads saying, that's evil, that's not even supposed to be here, just don't look at it, we'll go on by. And then a generation goes by, and, and they know it's there, but they don't really talk about it, and then a generation goes by, and the children are noticing, and it's just part of the deal. The Asher is part of the temple, isn't it? It's always been here, isn't it? It's just the way we do things. Exodus 20, verse 5, God told the people, as He opened up, the Ten Commandments, he said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. What does that mean? I've told you before, it means he comes to every generation, to the second, third, and fourth generation. He comes and visits. Are you still rebelling? Are you still following the pattern of before? Every generation, every person is responsible to the Lord for our own sins. So he comes visiting. Jealous for our hearts. And he says, I show loving kindness to thousands, that literally thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. The idol of jealousy is anything that takes up space in God's house. Anything that would take up space in the place that God wants to reside. Is there an idol of jealousy taking up residence in your temple? Is there something that makes it difficult? Because the Lord is not going to come into your temple and just bypass the idol that's there. What happens is when God sees the idol, as we will see coming up in a couple chapters in Ezekiel, He says, my spirit can't be there. If there's an idol set up here, I will not reside there. By the way, in applying this each to ourselves... The idol of jealousy taking up space. And primarily I'm probably talking to men, but I can speak to women about this as well in this very twisted age. Asherah was a sexual idol. The whole idea behind the Asherah and the Asherim and the reason why the men of Israel would sneak off to the high places and eventually it made its way into the temple was because there was a sexual component. It was very alluring to a man. And I point that out because sexual sin drives the Holy Spirit away faster than almost anything else. Sexual sin in our lives. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. The word, some of your Bibles, if you look that up, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18, you'll see flee immorality. But the word immorality is pornea from where we get the word pornography. Flee pornea. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And then Paul says, and that's that's a huge issue for a follower of Jesus. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You know how many men in America have an Asherim in their body? Have the Asherah right there in the temple? This is the temple of the Lord, guys. We've got to remember that. And when we open eyes to pornography on the internet, when we commit sexual immorality, we are sinning against the temple of the Lord, the very temple that we have said, God, please come reside here. It is a serious thing. Why so serious, Pastor? Because it drives out the Spirit of God. It pushes out. The Holy Spirit will not reside with an Asherah in your heart. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 back in Ezekiel 8. The Lord says, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, watch this, so that I would be far from my sanctuary. So that I would be far from my sanctuary? What are you saying, Lord? I'm saying if you set these things up here, I will not be here. If you want to drive the Holy Spirit out of your life, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, you want to drive the Holy Spirit out of your life, then focus on sexual things, pornea, immoral things, and the Spirit will not be comfortable being there. It's a surefire way to depart from the work and the presence of God's Spirit in your life. 
And he says, but yet you will see still greater abominations. And I just want to quickly point this out. I could probably do a whole sermon on this alone. But there is a progression of rebellion here. There is a progression of abominations. Verse 6, verse 13, verse 15. All the way through this, he says, you're going to see something worse. This is just the first vision. And he says, you're going to see worse than this. And so we get to the second scene. What I would call the secret chambers. We now move from the idol of jealousy. And Ezekiel sees now the secret chambers. Verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Where is Ezekiel right now? He's in the temple court. Now some commentators have tried to say perhaps now he's out looking in some of the homes, the private homes of, of some of these, uh, of these elders of Israel, these 70 elders. No, he's not, because he hasn't left the temple court. And the Bible is very clear about where he is. He's there in the court. He sees the Asher and God says, now, look at that hole over there. Dig through. He digs through into an inner chamber there in the temple. It's not the Holy of Holies. You know, it's not the holy place, but it's a chamber that was built in. Solomon perhaps built into the temple. And he says, dig in here. I want you to see this. And he goes into this chamber. And they're in this chamber. It's just remarkable. Verse 11, standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel. The 70 elders here in this secret chamber that has now idolatrous images, creeping things, and beasts all on all the walls. Here, Ezekiel comes in and discovers these 70 worshiping. In the temple, in secret chambers, and not worshiping God, but worshiping graven images on the walls. The 70 elders here are not the Sanhedrin. That wouldn't come about until later on. These are lay leaders in Jerusalem. They're not priests. They are counselors, advisors, leaders, examples among the people, respectable men. Lay leaders. You might call them the laity among the people. Romans 1.25 tells us, Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Sin is creepy. Their idolatry was as creepy as the Asherah on the outside, secret sin now in clandestine chambers of the temple. And they really thought they could hide it. Right there in the temple. As if God wouldn't know what was going on in His own house. And to make matters worse, notice who the ringleader is there in verse 11. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jeatzaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Jeatzaniah, who is this guy? Well, obviously he's the grand poobah of the lodge. (laughs) They're offering sweet incense, leading his 70 brothers in worship, secretive worship to these animalistic gods. 2 Kings 22, verses 8-11, through tells us who Shaphan was. Shaphan, this Jehoshaniah's dad, was Josiah's scribe. Josiah's scribe, who was the one when they rediscovered the Bible, the books of the law, were discovered in the the temple. And it was brought before Josiah. Shaphan is the one who read the Bible to the king. He's the one who read the words of the law. He was part of the whole restoration of things. And now his son, and I believe it is truly Jehoshaniah, the son of that Shaphan, Because the Bible is clear to point out this is the son of Shaphan. wants us to know who this is leading this idolatrous worship. It's now the son of the man who read the word of God to Josiah. How far have they come in just one generation? Jehoshaniah. Amazing. 
Verse 12 going on tells us, Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will still see greater abominations which they are committing. Ah, the Lord won't see it. How could they say this? And I'll tell you how. It's very simple. Secretive sin denies the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Lord. When we sin in secret, when we think we're deceiving other people, perhaps men are wives, we think they don't know. Or perhaps kids are parents. Ah, they don't see what I'm doing. Or we're off doing things and we're keeping it hidden. These secret things, what we're saying when we do those things and we're saying is we're saying God doesn't know and God doesn't see. He's unaware. All I have to do is close the door. All I need, as in some Muslim cultures, all I need is a wall high enough that you know Allah can't look over and I can do whatever I want. That's truly believe. That's why you'll see high, high walls, especially around expensive homes in Saudi Arabia. We'll just close the door. We'll just go into an inner chamber. Oh, it's not the Holy of Holies. It's it's a side chamber. We'll just sneak off in here and do our little worship. And God has no idea what's going on. (coughs) He doesn't see. He doesn't know. And yet the Bible tells us, Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is in the place of death, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell on the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And so brothers and sisters, I ask you the question, how big is your view of God? Because the largeness or smallness of your view of God has an impact on your sin life, on your thought life on the secret chambers of the heart. If you would believe that the God of the Bible truly is omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent everywhere, then you got to know He is even present in the secret chambers. I'm not sneaking anything past God. He knows. And not like... I remember when I was a kid, and many of you do too, that that view of God is as harsh and watching to pounce, you know? To squash you. He's got His eye on you. God's got His eye on you. I think I told you a few years ago, a friend of mine, a girl who was in youth group uh, back in California, sent us uh, something that she had stitched together, a little needlepoint thing that said, God has His eye on you. And it says, because He can't keep His eyes off you. And that's the right thought. you know. He loves His people too much. He wants to be involved. Hey, what's going on? What's happening in here? What you doing? He is fully aware fully cognizant of everything that's going on, especially in the secret chambers of our hearts. The secret chambers are a great picture here of our thought life. These were real chambers in the temple where they were going off to worship, but we have real chambers like that in the temple of our bodies, in our hearts, the thought life. The things that go on in our heads that nobody knows. Some of them are just silly, some of them are funny. If I told you some of the things that pop into my brain when I'm teaching, you would think, okay, dreadlocks was bad enough, but that's just lame. (laughs) The things that we think that nobody knows, that we think nobody knows. And so I ask you, if Ezekiel drilled a hole into your head this morning, or a hole into your heart, what would he find? What would he see in those secret chambers? Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, You've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Do you realize what Jesus does in the in the uh, uh, Beatitudes and, and the... Why can't I think of it? The Sermon on the Mount. Thank you. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is He removes the outer life and brings it right into the heart. And He deals with the thought life. If you're even angry with someone, see, I can be angry with you and you don't even know it. I can be sitting there going, yeah, yeah, idiot. (laughs) No, that's great. Yeah, we'll see you later. Bless your heart. (laughs) We can hide that stuff. It's in the heart. 
God says, you know what? If it's going on in the heart, it's just as bad. Jesus pushes it a step further. He says, <laughs> verse 27, Matthew uh, chapter 5, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, as long as I don't commit adultery, I'm good. And Jesus says, well, <laughs> I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And what has Satan done? He's made it possible for men to see all kinds of women wearing very little in magazines, on the internet, on TV. You can't watch commercials, anything. It's all over the place to grab our attention to bring about lust in the heart. You can walk through an airport terminal, walk through a bookstore. And men, tell me, is it is it easy? You look at it, you go, oh, okay. You know, and, and I, I, a friend of mine says, as long as it's not longer than 30 seconds, as long as you know, you're, 30 seconds you can look, but then you got to look away because after 30 seconds it turns into lust. <laughs> I'm like, 30 seconds is a long time, dude. I, I can get a lot of detail in 30 seconds. What is Jesus saying? Your secret chambers are what I'm concerned with. Your thought life. What you think you can hide, you cannot hide. I see it. And the easiest access point in our lives for sin to take hold is the heart. It is the thought life. It's what I dwell on. It's my imaginations. How do we deal with such a thing? It's very simple. Open up the chambers. Don't hide them. I learned early on as a young man that if I confessed my sin, suddenly the allure was gone. If I just shared with a brother, with someone else, with my wife, honey, I'm I'm struggling with this. Boom! The chamber opens up. And it's like it just gets all aired out. And it's not that desirable a thing anymore. But hold it to yourself. Keep it secret. And secrecy in and of itself is often the allure of sin. Which is why I believe John said, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That is a standard rule here at the Bridge Fellowship. Walk in the light. If you're struggling with someone, please go talk to them in love. And don't go talk to them in arrogance. You're wrong and I'm here to tell you why. Go say, I'm struggling. i got an issue here. Can we resolve this together? Walk in the light. If there is something secretive in your life that you know is sin, and, and, and you realize Father sees these things, open the chamber. Confess it to Him openly. Find a brother, men. Find a sister, women. And confess what's going on. Because it gets it out and allows redemption to come. It allows the secret chambers to get aired out and washed out and cleansed. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen? Amen. Open up the chambers. By the way, the side issue, and this is not a sin issue, but it is an issue before us, and, and it's the reason why our shepherds need to take this Thursday night and, and spend it in prayer together. You realize our shepherds are primarily lay leaders. With the exception of Les and myself, all of our shepherds are volunteer lay leaders called to lead, but not paid to lead. So we're similar. I was looking at this thinking, wow, the laity had their secret chambers, and a standard for our leadership is not to have secret chambers. Not only in in sin and the thought life, but secret chambers in terms of what's going on in the church, what decisions are being made under the table. We don't want to do that. We don't ever want to make any decisions under the table that the body is not aware of. Here's the thing. The ball is rolling, as you know, on the building. If you drive by there right now, you will see all the concrete footings are poured. Insulation is going in this week. Things are happening. we got contracts out there. This is moving. And we could very well have our Christmas Eve service in the new building at the rate we're going right now. It's one little issue. And depending on the perspective you have, you might say it's a financial issue or you might say it's a faith issue. We said a long time ago, we don't want to take out a mortgage, right? That was kind of the pronouncement I made up here. We want to build this by faith, just trusting in the Lord to provide and, and trusting Him to move our hearts as a fellowship to, to make this thing happen. And we're committed still to not taking out a big mortgage, but the bank has been looking at our situation and has offered us a line of credit. 
$800,000 unsecured line of credit, which means we don't have to sign. It'll just be based on the property and the building itself, a line of credit, which would then allow us to be sure that of the contracts that we've made, nobody goes unpaid. That in our responsibility in this community, we pay our bills. We're not a church that says, oh, I'm sorry, we're walking by faith, so you're going to have to wait for your check for sixty grand. So originally we were talking about that and thinking, well, maybe it would be a good idea to take out a small line of credit, to 200000 or something, 300000 just to make sure that if we come up short, we can at least pay the most recent things. And so the prayer is right now. They're saying, hey, we want to give you 800000 because we want to see your project completed because an uncompleted project does nobody any good. And so with what we have in the bank, which is roughly five hundred fifty grand, actually it's beginning to go down now because we're already paying things, another 800000 would pretty much see the project done. So it makes sense. But we realized that, but we said we weren't going to take a mortgage. Well, it's not a mortgage. Are we mincing words? Are we dancing around this? Are we taking away from the opportunity to trust the Lord? I told these shepherds, part of my struggle is I can say we're going to build by faith, but I can't make faith happen in our fellowship. That, that has to happen because we are all listening and the Holy Spirit moves and, and He provides through us the generosity needed to do this. I'm not begging anyone. I'm not asking for money this morning. Please understand me. I'll let Glenn do that next week. <laughs> when we say we're going to build this building by faith and everybody charged up, I said that a couple of years ago, everybody said, yeah, it's great, no mortgage, all oh, this will be marvelous, see what God does. And here we stand at a place where it's like we can finish this by the end of the year and expand our reach of the mission of this church and get the job done. But we're going to run up short real fast. And things are going to stop very quickly. So we're, this, this right now is the issue. And we wanted to just open it up before you all and let you know, this is the issue our shepherds are praying about. Saying, you know, you don't build a tower, Jesus says, without thinking it through. And without making sure you have the resource. And so we want to be good stewards, but we also want to be people of faith. Right? And it is not faithless, by the way, to borrow money from a church... Many, many churches do it and get the job done and go on with their mission. So, anyway, that's it's kind of the back and forth. We have a decision to make this week as to whether or not to accept that line of credit to be sure that our bills get paid. We don't have to, by the way, use the line of credit if we accept it. It's just there. We know if we need it, it's there. And some might say, well, that's faithless. And others would say, well, that's good stewardship. That's where we are. <laughs> Would you pray for us, please, this week? And we are all praying through this week, and we're going to meet Thursday night and really pray together. And what we want, what we're desiring, is unanimity among the shepherds as to what God is saying. Is the Lord saying, look, this is my provision for you. You know the old story? I'm going to go so way over time if I'm not careful. You know the old story about the, the guy stranded on his roof and the flood comes? And, and he says, Lord, rescue me, and the helicopter comes. You know, and he says, no, no, the Lord's going to rescue me. And a boat comes, no, the Lord's going to rescue me. And a rubber dinghy comes, no, the Lord's going to rescue me. And then he dies in the flood and asks the Lord, why didn't you rescue me? Well, I sent you a boat, a helicopter, and a dinghy. You know. <laughs> we need to be wise. And we need to see, is this a move of the Lord? Is the offering by the bank, and it is a remarkable offering, by the way. If you know anything about finance, this doesn't happen. A bank does not offer you $800,000 in unsecured credit to say, we believe that your structure and your uh, land is going to be worth it, so we're willing to lend this to you to be sure you finish. What? That doesn't happen. So we're praying, God, is that you? Or Lord, is there some other way that you're going to provide for this? Either way, we want to walk by faith. I think I've said enough about that. So pray for us and, and with us this week. We want to keep those chambers open. Verse 14. We continue now to the third scene. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. Behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. Third scene, weeping for Tammuz. What in the world is this about? Well, we now move from the laity to the ladies. And they're not worshipping an Asherah or a creepy creature wallpaper. They're worshipping Tammuz, weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz who? Genesis 10 starts the story. I'm going to give it to you real quickly and you can 
study this out perhaps later. Genesis chapter 10 tells us Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, or a mighty hunter against the Lord, a rebellious man at heart, founder of Babel, along at the founder of the world's first pagan idolatry, started in Babylon, led by this man Nimrod. He married a woman named Semiramis. Semiramis became the queen of Babylon, reigning with great wickedness. And depending on which version of this ancient history you read or you hear, after Nimrod's death, Semiramis was said to have become miraculously with child. She conceived and had a child, and that child's name was Tammuz. Tammuz. His name remains a month on the Jewish calendar to this day, the month of Tammuz. Why were the women weeping? And by the way, don't, don't look down on the Jewish people because we have pagan names all over our calendar. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturn Day, and Sunday, we got all kinds of paganism in our culture. But at the winter solstice, and this is why the women here are weeping for Tammuz, around December 22nd through 25th, Tammuz, this fabled miracle child, was killed by a wild boar, as legend goes. But the Babylonian legend maintains after being buried for 40 days, Tammuz resurrected to life. Isn't that interesting? Long before Jesus came to the planet, a woman, miraculously conceived, gave birth to a miracle child who then died and resurrected. And you might hear that and go, ooh, I don't like that. Because if that happened before Christ, that kind of undermines, maybe the whole Christ story was just based on some ancient... Don't worry about that. I'll explain that in just a second. But this is what they say happened. The ceremony that commemorated his death, the death of Tammuz, involved putting a special log on a fire. The Chaldean word for uh, child is Yule. The Yule log on the fire, Yule tied by the fireside. Merry Christmas. (laughs) The ritual of his resurrection involved, and hang on to your stockings, decorating and worshiping an evergreen tree. That's how they celebrated his resurrection. Jeremiah chapter 10 describes it for us. Listen to this. Jeremiah 10.3, the customs of the peoples are delusion because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fascinate it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Yuletide by the fireside and rocking around the Christmas tree. I'm done. (laughs) Tammuz worship involved the fall harvest, the dead of winter, and the rites of spring. And that's kind of the picture that this story was written around. And so the women of Judah enacted this weeping for Tammuz, hoping to assure divine provision. That's what this was about. We go, we do the Tammuz weeping thing, and when the fall hits, as it was about to hit at this time, we'll have a good harvest. It's idolatry, again. At the temple, you got the Asherah for the men, you got Tammuz for the women, you got the, the leaders of the people in the secret chambers, and this is a mess. And it's all over the temple of God. What about this Tammuz story? You know, every ancient civilization has had a mother-child myth. Everyone. And it just runs down through history. How could this be? How could it happen? How could it come before Jesus, who we know was born of a woman? Who we know lived 33 years, died, and on the third day was resurrected to life. Doesn't this undermine that story? No, I have a very simple way to understand it, and that is that Satan is a student of prophecy too. And as much as all these things were prophesied ahead of time in the coming of Christ, Satan comes up with his own version. It's a twisted version. It doesn't quite fit. It's bizarre. And it continues the involved worship of the Madonna and child image, which has made its way into the Catholic Church. Well, don't you worship Jesus? Not Jesus the baby. He's not still in the manger gang and He's not even still on the cross. He is raised and resurrected and glorified and He is God and that's the Jesus I worship. But this story is counterfeited countless times by Satan. This is what Satan does. He picks up on something and he alters it slightly, counterfeits it, makes it different. And and here in Jerusalem, we've got Babylonian Tammuz worship in the morning and weeping ritual for Tammuz. What did Jesus say when the women were weeping for Him? 
Jesus said in Luke 23, 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if, listen, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when the tree is dry? What does that mean? Jesus is just saying, What will happen when I'm out of sight? If they'll do these things to the Son of Man, to the Son of God, when I am right here in your midst, what's going to happen when I'm not here? Out of sight. Out of mind. If people rejected Jesus in the flesh, how then will they accept Him in this season? I'll tell you how. The work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work in this world. He is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He is bringing people to a confrontation of will you believe in Jesus or not. But Jesus makes it very clear our biggest human problem tends to be out of sight, out of mind. And when I'm not here, then what's it going to be like, he asks. Scene number four, quickly. Worshiping the Son. In the fourth and final and worst of the four visions that Ezekiel receives, verse 15. Oh, where am I? Verse 15. He said to me, Do you see the Son of Man? You will see still greater abominations than these. Verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. And this is the worst one. In the Babylonian Talmud, we're told that you could stand in the inner court of the temple, look out the front door, facing directly to the east, and you could see the rising sun. What Ezekiel sees here is 25 men doing that very thing, but not just looking at the rising sun, worshipping the rising sun, prostrating the word, flat down on their faces before the rising sun as it came up on the horizon. Sun worship. Why 25 men? We believe it's because we have 24 leaders of the courses of the Levites. There were 24 divisions that served in Jerusalem at any given time with a leader over each one of the 24. So you had 24 lead priests over these different courses and the high priest, 24 plus the high priest, 25 men. We have just gone from the laity to the ladies, now to the Levites and the high priest himself. And they are worshiping the Son. All of Jerusalem is engaged in full-blown idolatry from top to bottom, head to toe. Deuteronomy 4.19 God said, Do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Don't do it. Do not serve your horoscope. Oh, I just read the horoscope because it's kind of fun. You know what? The second you do, you serve it. Because you begin to look for it in the day that follows. Wow, my horoscope said that. Stupid. (laughs) I found out years ago based on the horoscope that I'm apparently a Virgo. Virgo. Great. (laughs) Sounds so feminine, you know. Couldn't I be like Capricorn? It's all just dumb. And by the way, the, the Babylonian horoscope is different than today, so it's all messed up. Times have changed, <laughs> and yet people are still subscribing to these things. God says, don't do that. Don't worship the host of heaven. I created those things. You know what the sun is? A ball of burning gas. You want to worship that? Really? How much wisdom, how much enlightenment, how much power is there? I gave it whatever power is there. And even that power is slowly atrophying, burning down. The priests are standing here in the most sacred spot of the inner courts, not the Holy of Holies, but the most sacred spot of the inner court where only the priests were allowed to be. And Joel 2.17 says, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? But instead of praying for the people, the Levites are worshiping and praying to the sun. 
Instead of weeping for the condition of the people of Judah, which by the way, I think that kind of intercession would have saved the Jewish people. But instead of praying for them, they're praying to the Son. Instead of facing toward the Holy of Holies and offering sacrifice to the Lord, their backs were to the Lord. In abject defiance. Verse 17. He said to me, Do you see this Son of Man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting a twig to their nose. What exactly does that mean? They're putting a twig to their nose. Early Jewish commentators translate the twig as a stench. And it's not their nose, but my nose. In other words, they are putting a stench to my nose. So that's how the early uh, rabbis recognize this. Others look at this, putting a twig to the nose, and they're saying it, it, a twig is like fuel to the fire, so it's really like uh, adding fuel to the fire of God's anger. And that makes sense, actually, because the nose tends to be a place where anger is recognized and seen as the nostrils flare. In fact, the word for anger in the Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken, look it up because I may be, I can't tell my east from my west, but <laughs> I believe that the word for anger has to do with flaring and is a pictorial word. So you've got the flaring nostrils and the twig in the nose, fuel to the fire of the anger of God. Perhaps that's what the twig to the nose means. Others say, no, this is part of the ritual. Uh, The twig to the nose is the Persian ritual of Avesta. The Persian ritual of Avesta, which did involve uh, sun worship, believing that the sun was itself a god that gave light, illumination, revelation, gave power, And so the ritual of Avesta involved veiling the face with a tamarisk branch, putting the twig to the nose, prostrating themselves before the sun. Bottom line, the Levites were thumbing their noses at God with their backs to the Holy of Holies. Why is it the worst of all of these abominations? Because it disavowed the true God. It was the very leaders, the priests of Israel, disavowing the Lord. Worshipping the Son. What did Jesus say? Luke 10.22 All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, Father, S-O-N, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. John 5.22 Not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 8.12 He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here's the deal, gang. A sun is rising in the east. The sun is going to come from the east. Matthew 24.30 says, Then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's the Son that we are called to worship. Because the Son is the Father. And the Father is the Son. And there is one true God to whom we owe all of our allegiance. And all the rest is just creation. Verse 18, Therefore I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Okay, so here are the exiles. They're sitting in Ezekiel's living room. Right? The leaders there in Babylon. And Ezekiel, whatever happens there in their presence, just, he goes away. (laughs) Caught up by the lock of his hair. He's drawn over to Jerusalem. He sees these visions. He is led through this by the Lord. And now he's back. And it's his job to relay to these leaders what he's just seen. Why? I asked this question Wednesday night. They couldn't do anything about this. I mean, think about that. The exiles in Babylon could do nothing about what was happening in Judah and Jerusalem. They're already out of the picture. I mean, they could repent, but they're not even there doing it. They can't fight. They can't run away. They can't help. What's happening there and what's happening here, and perhaps you feel that way, you hear stuff like this, we read it and say, yeah, that's the stuff of history. What what does that have to do with me? What can I do about that? 
We talked about midweek that Jeremiah spoke mostly words. Ezekiel gave mostly pictures, types, uh, parables. Why? Because words are for warning, visions are for awakening. And the Lord right now, even before all is said and done in Judah, He's working on the exiles to awaken their faith. To open their eyes. Not to the past, not even to the present, but to what's coming. To have them aware and awake and alert for the future. And that being the case, if awakening is the issue, and the reason God brought Ezekiel to Jerusalem to bring these visions back to them in, then what is He waking them up for? What is wrong, and here's the question, what is wrong in Jerusalem to which God would awaken the exiles? It's a very important question because it is the sole application for us this morning. What is wrong in Jerusalem is the very same thing we've got to be awakened to right now. There is one issue that connects all four visions. Did you see it? The idol of jealousy, the secret chambers, weeping for Tammuz, and the worship of the sun. All four involve worship. Worship's the issue. In Jerusalem, worship was the problem. In Babylon, worship is the issue to which they needed to be awakened. What do you mean, Rick? I believe the exiles and I believe we as the church need to be awakened from the stupor of supplanted worship. All four worship scenarios in Jerusalem, worship itself, the worship of the true living God, had been supplanted by idol worship. Altered, affected, changed, messed with. Because when we cease to worship the Lord, out of sight, out of mind, and eventually out of heart. You know, the single answer, and it really struck me, to all four of these things, secret sin in our lives, um, worshiping the things of man, uh, secret sin creeping in, all of this stuff, the singular answer to every one of these is worship. Worship Jesus. The people of Judah, by the way, Judah means praise. And the people of Judah had not stopped worshiping. They were still worshiping. (laughs) We never do stop worshiping. We still show up. They kept right on worshiping while God was furtively being replaced by other affections. Psalm 2.11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord glory, the glory do His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Psalm 97, verse 7, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Psalm 99, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. And I read all of those psalms quickly to you because every single one of them has the word worship written in the imperative form. In fact, every song among the psalms where the word worship is used, with the exception of two places, Every one of them, worship is imperative. It is in the command form. Worship the Lord. Why is it in the command form? Because if you follow Jesus, hear me on this, worship is not optional. It's not optional. It's not, okay, well I just, but I don't like it. Sorry. If you are following Jesus, worship is not an option. How can you say that, Rick? Because Jesus' people worship under compulsion. I wasn't sure if I was going to say that, but I think it is absolutely right. Understand, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you must worship under compulsion. What are you saying? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Some versions say, compels us. Because, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
And so here's the application. If you've removed some kind of sin, some idol in your life, and it keeps creeping back in, your answer is this, worship God. Worship God. If you're struggling with hidden sin in the chambers of the heart, worship Jesus. Open the chambers and worship Jesus. If you're worried about how you're going to make ends meet, perhaps you're looking for provision and you don't know where it's going to come from, stop weeping for Tammuz and start rejoicing in the Lord. Worship God. And if, tragically, your back is turned to God, because maybe you're looking for some kind of enlightenment or power somewhere else, turn around and worship God. He wants first place, gang, in mind, in heart, in soul, and spirit. And the question is, will we give it to Him in worship? Mm -hmm.